Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Terrence Malingon. We got a really good one this week. Two guests, they were both excellent, very different, really interesting conversations. First up, Taylor Rooks. She is a host and reporter for Bleacher Report and the host of Take It There with Taylor Rooks, where she has interviewed a ton of, uh, of major athletes in this country. Jimmy Butler, Damian Lillard, Elena Deladon, Saquon Barkley. Taylor is only 26 and has really become a national voice at a really young age. And I think you're going to enjoy our conversation about yeah, just the pressures of that and being that young, being a woman of color in the business, having mentors such as Carrie Champion and and what that's meant. So that, that was a really interesting conversation, and I think you're going to enjoy that. We follow that up with Jim Ross, who um, is one of the iconic voices of professional wrestling. He is now signed to All Elite Wrestling, AEW, which is about to kick off in October or so. Uh, they'll be on Turner, and that is a big production with Cody Rhodes and Kenny Omega. And JR talks to us about his new role there. He's got a podcast with Conrad Thompson, a frequent guest on this show that is blowing up called Grilling JR. And we talk about just a lot of stuff, just sort of how broadcasting and wrestling is at times very similar to broadcasting elsewhere, why he never really wanted a no storyline and how it helped his broadcasting. So if you're, if you're a pro wrestling fan, I think you'll enjoy that. But just beyond that, Jim Ross is just a great storyteller. So it's, uh, it's just enjoyable to sit back and, and hear him uh, answer questions. So tell Rooks first, and then Jim Ross, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Taylor Rooks is the host of Take It There with Taylor Rooks, which airs on Bleacher Report. You can also see her on other Turner Sports properties, including TNT, and we'll ask her if she's been on NBA TV. She'll, uh, she'll let me know this. Uh, prior to her work at Bleacher Report, she was an anchor and reporter at SNY. It's a big regional sports network in New York City, and also she worked for the Big Ten Network. Taylor Rooks joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Taylor, it's uh, I know you're not a morning person. We're taping this in the morning, so I, pre- I appreciate you waking up. Thank you. Oh, it was more than worth it. You know, I wake up maybe around 9 as I have to get up, so I've had some time, had some coffee, had a biscuit. I'm in it. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, my advice to you is never have kids because that that nine o'clock changes pretty quickly if that happens. So <laughs> stay st- <laughs> stay parent, stay stay childless forever, and your sleep will be great. Um, you um, you are uh, twenty six years old, but you have a lot of experience in the business, and specifically experience interviewing major athletes in the United States, among the biggest. Um, do you feel older? than your age professionally at this point? Honestly, I think I just feel older in life sometimes. And I think a lot of that is just because it's, you know, sometimes I'll just be hanging out with my friends and I just feel like our experiences are so different or the problems that I have are not problems that they have and the problems they have are problems that I have. It's just kind of a relatability difference sometimes. Um, And that certainly makes me feel older, but I feel in the business, I'd say about 26. And I think that that works to my advantage because I think in a lot of ways it makes the interviews feel fresher. Um, and I have a different perspective than maybe some of my counterparts just because I'm younger. Um, but I I would say I feel about 35 in life. <laughs> hmm, that's interesting. How uh, How is age an advantage for you when you're interviewing athletes who are 
many times, either your age or right around your age. I want to say it makes them feel comfortable. It makes them feel as if they're talking to a peer. What, what I've learned in interviews is a lot of times you automatically feel like you're being attacked or criticized or judged, especially when you're talking to someone who doesn't look like you. And I say that meaning their skin color, their age, their gender. There's a lot of things that play a part in whether you're going to open up to a person or talk to that person or say what you really feel. Um, and I think that I've been able to find a bit of, I don't want to call it a niche, but something that really works for me when it comes to younger athletes, um, female athletes, and also black athletes, because they tie a lot of their identity into the things that I tie my identity to. And it's been a really interesting time with different things that we discuss now because a lot of things do kind of center around race and social issues and politics and just societal issues. Um, and you feel more comfortable discussing those things with somebody that you think has maybe had those same experiences as you. And that comes with age, like I said, and that also comes with your appearance. I, you know, I would have gotten into some of these issues a little bit later, but I'm glad you brought those up. One of the things I know is that Carrie Champion um, has been a mentor to you, if that's the right word. Um, I, I know her for a long oh, time. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, I have great respect for her. Um, she's been on this podcast before. And, you know, she's, um, you know, she's walked in some of the shoes you've walked, but it is different. I mean, I, I she didn't... Um, she didn't sort of, how do I sort of phrase this? She didn't sort of blow up in the social media world the way you did because you're of that sort of age and that era. So a couple things with Carrie. Um, first, what has she told you about working as a prominent woman in sports broadcasting? And then beyond that, particularly as a woman of color uh, in sports broadcasting in a business that is still, generally speaking, dominated by white males. The biggest thing I would say Carrie taught me is just at the end of the day, you have to be you. And like being you means not feeling like you have to emulate something else or act like you're something that you're not or try to play this role that you're not or play a role that maybe other people want to see from you. And that's something I think took me maybe a little while to understand. And it's something that I can grasp now that at the end of the day, you're not going to be happy in this or feel fulfilled or really like yourself if you aren't yourself all the time and just who you want to be and not what you think other people want to see, what makes other people happy, what you think is cool on social media at the time. Like you just have to be you 24 seven. And that's something that she's always preached and also betting on yourself and believing in your work and that you can carry you know, your career, however you want to do it. Like when I decided to go from the Big to Network to SNY, that was one of the first calls that I made asking her what she would do. And I was really nervous about it. Like, am I going to leave this place that I worked at for two years? I also covered the Big Ten four years in college. I was very comfortable there. I understood the work. I understood the conference. I understood the people. And I was very, very comfortable in Chicago at the Big Ten Network. But when I called her, she's like, you have to bet on you. Like, don't let comfort be a reason that you stay at a place. And so there's just a lot of things that I had to learn very quickly. And Carrie has always really been a guidance um, for a lot of those lessons. Um, and also, of course, what it's like being a woman in this business. Main thing is not a lot of people are going to like you. Most people won't like you. They may act like they do, but that isn't always going to be the way that it is. And so you just have to be comfortable with you. Like, 
and I say this all of the time, every woman in this business has the disadvantage that they're going to be seen as a woman first and a journalist second. Like when I think of different interviews that I've done, right? Almost every single question is about me being a woman or me being black or the experience or struggles that I've had because of those two things. Almost every single one, which is fine. I understand that like that's a question that should be had and I want other women and other black people to hear my experience and take something from it. So there is a lot of, I think there's a lot of strength and a lot of advantage that comes from discussing those two things. But if I go into an interview, right, and they sit there and they're just saying, okay, so what is it like when you're trending because how you look in this outfit? Or what is it like when people are always saying that you're pretty, blah, blah. And so you have someone who works in sports, like on a show, but you're not talking to them about sports, which to me is wild. Like if I, like when I go on The Breakfast Club, which was honestly a big moment for me because it's such a cultural show and I truly enjoy watching it and they have created this amazing product that I'm so thankful I was able to go on the show. But if they had someone like Stephen A. Smith on the show or Scott Van Pelt, like they would have them on the show and they would talk about sports. They would talk about the playoffs. They would talk about the draft coming up. They would talk about who is going to win the Super Bowl next year. Like they would be talking about the things that they covered. Like they'd have someone on that show so they would talk about their job. But when you have a woman sports journalist on the show, you want to talk about what it's like to be a woman, which really doesn't make sense, but that's what I have encountered in many spaces that I've gone into. It's like people are more interested in the fact that, like, you're a female doing this and less interested in the fact that you're just doing it. And that isn't the case for anybody else ever. <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's a really thoughtful answer, uh, and I appreciate that. And it's going to make me ask you, what do you think of uh, Kawhi shot? Yesterday, before we move on to other parts about, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, but honestly, I have enjoyed watching the Blazers, really, more than any other team. Exactly. Like, yeah, I know. The entire playoffs, they have been incredibly exciting. And also, I had Damian Lillard on the show, so him doing well in the playoffs has certainly upped the views. Um, so I'm thankful for that as well. But it, it's been really, really fun. I'm excited to watch um, the Western Conference Finals. Well, you, let me tell you, like, see if you agree with me. The Damian Lillard is ridiculous. He's a he's a stone cold killer when it comes to shooting. But the thing I I really like best about him as a superstar is that he and this CJ McCollum said this after the game. He he allows the other players around him to feel not necessarily bigger than they are, but to feel comfortable and confident in taking big shots if he's not taking that shot. Which obviously CJ hit, you know, basically the biggest shot of that game against. Denver. Um, I don't. I've never talked to Lillard. I've obviously seen him interviewed. I think he seems like a really bright and thoughtful dude. But do you? You know what I mean? There's some superstars. Like I feel like Kobe Bryant as a superstar was a total killer, and like it was less about making everybody else great. But he's so great that he's gonna he's gonna sort of take over and win. Where Lillard is like one of those superstars who I th- feels like makes everybody around him better too. Does that make any sense? That's kind of the thing I like. No, about and I completely agree. Yeah, you know, just well, before you do, you know, any interview, you're doing that field work, asking different players about who you're interviewing, asking different people about who you're interviewing. And every person on that team, like, lights up when they start talking about Damien and they're telling all of these stories. And Damien was talking about his leadership 
And he said, you know, once he was playing in a game, and I can't remember who it was that came up to him. I think it was when he was playing with Plumlee. And he did something in a game he shouldn't have done. Damien did. And Plumlee called him out on it. And Damien's like, you know, my first instinct was to kind of be upset about the way he did it. But I sat there and I took it and I listened because I have to show my teammates that they can come to me the same way that I come to them. And so, like, his leadership is really about empowering people and never making anybody feel like he's the star. It's like he's the star because they do their part as well. And that's really apparent, like, when you talk to anybody about him, any teammate. Like, I haven't really heard anyone have a bad word to say about him as a human or as a player. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And they're they're definitely going to be the underdogs. I'm gonna, that's going to be fascinating series to uh to watch in the same way the bucks and uh the raptors are um one of the things that is really clear about your show is that it has gotten a ton of publicity uh you have done a lot of interviews yourself you mentioned the breakfast club which uh which i watched yesterday before um uh you know doing doing my own research i know you've done a lot of podcasts you've done a lot of uh interviews with print places so it's clear that bleach report they're putting some you know some marketing might behind this promotion and you're obviously getting out there too to to get the word out is have you felt um i don't know if this is the right phrase but like is there any pressure that you feel in terms of the company you know really putting not just saying hey we believe in you taylor but like like literally backing it up with like resources money finance etc yeah i mean i think i'm always going to want the thing that i do to be the absolute best and then when you're surrounded with other like surrounded by people that are like no no we need this to be the absolute best um (laughs) there's definitely i would say an element of pressure that comes with that but it's in no way negative pressure. You know, it's like you have no choice but to make this good. And I actually thrive in those type of situations where it depends on me for this to work. And it makes me want to work harder, better, smarter, longer, like all of those things. But I'm super thankful to them for, I mean, me being like a lower third on the playoffs, so like me having a commercial during the playoffs and also during March Madness and Tiger being like a killer publicist and setting up all these interviews has been fantastic. And it's been a crazy whirlwind, but I recognize that this is the marquee show on Bleacher. And for that to work, I have to excel at the things that I'm supposed to get done. Um, And I think about that every day. I mean, the show is all that I think about all the time. How can we get a better interview guest? How can I become a better interviewer? How can we produce this show better? Like, I'm thinking about that constantly. Like, this is really, and this goes back to just, I think my life had to move really quickly, and it's what I've been doing since I was so young, that, like, this is me. Like, this is, I don't want to say this is all I have, but this is what I have. Like, I have had to change a lot of my life because this is the path that I wanted to go down. So it has to work out. And I have to do whatever I can do to create a good product and create good content um, because it just this is the decision that I, I've made. Like, this is all that I do. Um, so, yes, pressure comes from 
bleacher, but like more pressure just comes from me and, and the fact that I'm here now and I have to make it the best it can be. Your guests uh, have included Jimmy Butler, uh, Mo Salah, Damian Lillard, Saquon Barkley, Elena Deladon, Rudy Gobert. I imagine you have others, but I'm listing those um, because those are major names in sports. How um, have you landed these guests? Because your interviews are not just, you know, let's get X on the phone. You know, a lot of these are traveling to where they are. So there's budget, there's logistics, there's timing. What's the process of of getting these guests. And then the other thing is how do you determine who you want on? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, uh, it makes you smile when I hear like all the people that have been on, cause that's pretty good season one. Um, but <laughs> every guest booking has certainly, you know, been different. Um, and a lot of things have worked in my favor. A, that I worked at the big 10 networks. So I was covering a lot of people while we were essentially the same age. Um, a lot of people that were in college at that time, so I've known a lot of NBA players and NFL players since they were, like, maybe 19. Um, so that has helped me. And then once I went to SNY, the podcast that I did probably helped me the most. So, for example, Jimmy Butler, he was on my podcast when I was at SNY. So when I started the show at Bleacher, I just called his agent. and was like, I'd love to have Jimmy on the show. I actually want to be the first guest. Can you make that happen? His agent did that for me. Uh, Damian Lillard, I actually met Damian Lillard when I was maybe 21 because my good friend, Myers Leonard, we went to Illinois together. He was getting married and we were both at the wedding. So I met Damian and his girlfriend and also CJ all at Myers' wedding. And since we became friends then, once I was having the show, I was like, hey, I would love to have you on the show. That worked out for me. Um, Saquon, obviously I was covering the Giants at SNY, so I already had that relationship with him and his family and his agent, and they were incredibly easy to work with going to LA and having him on the show. Um, Elena Deligon, our booking team, booked that one for me. Um, who am I missing? Oh, Rudy Gobert. I got really interested in his story once he like cried after not making the All-Star team. Um, and he followed me on Twitter, so I was like, can you connect me with whoever does your media? I'd like to have you on the show. So that's how we got Rudy. Um, Mo was also the booking team. And then the one coming up after Elena would be John Morant. Um, and that was actually pretty easy. Like, young kids love Bleacher Report. So I actually shot him see him and was like, I want to have him on my show. So on Bleacher Report, like, who should I contact? And I mean, in like five seconds, he's like, okay, here's my media person. Email her. She'll set up. So the booking team emailed her, and we ended up having John Moran on the show. So it's been a mix of different things, but it's mainly just been relationships and connections and, like, harnessing those and cultivating them. My number one thing that I say to everybody is I just believe in being good to people. Like, I would hope that there's nobody who would hear my name and think that I was ever mean or rude. Like, I go out of my way to be kind and thoughtful to everyone. Um, and I think it's really worked to my advantage because people want to come on the show People reach out to us about being on the show. Whenever I need help looking at other guests and I ask a guest who's already been on the show to ask them, they will do it and then the guests will do it, you know? So if you create this good experience for people, they're just like more likely to come on. And that's certainly the experience that I've had when it comes to guest booking. Um, and as far as how to pick a guest, it's a mix of just like their name and also their like 
topical relevance, if that makes sense. Like Rudy Gobert, I don't think is as big of a star as like a Jimmy Butler or a Damian Lillard, but people cared about him in that moment because of what happened with him. And then through that, we branched off to other topics with him. So it's a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a game figuring out who should be on the show, but that's the best way I can describe it. Where is the show in terms of its first season run? How many are left? There are um, Elena this week. Ja is next. Three. Three more. Three left. Okay. And then do you, what happens then? Is it, um, do you wait to see if Bleacher Report wants a season two or is that already, is that, is, are the plans for a second season already in motion and, and, and that continues whenever your team starts picking up production again? Yeah. I mean, I don't know like the exact answer to that because we haven't really discussed it. Um, I do know that I'm going to be here longer because I have a contract. Um, <laughs> so I would, I would think, but um, no, I mean, the show has exceeded every benchmark that was set for it. I mean, every single episode has had a million plus on IGTV on the YouTube for every single episode. It's reached a hundred thousand plus views, like, which is, I think really good. And it's more than what we anticipated with the show. So there's certainly been success. Um, and there's been a, a want to, I think, see athletes in these specific spaces and being interviewed in a way that maybe they're not always interviewed. Um, so I think, you know, we're doing well. And I would assume we're going to have a season two. Um, but I think we're just kind of trying to get through get through this one. Did they, um, and when I say they, did Bleacher Report Management give you specific metric goals to reach? How um, how were they, at least in your mind, determining success for this? Yeah, I mean, I didn't get, you know, like a big spreadsheet that had, you know, this is what we want the metrics to be. It was more just like we want people to watch it. And like to them, they love obviously certain mediums of social media, like Twitter and Instagram is big, so when we put clips out and they're getting a lot of views and getting a lot of retweets to them, that's success. The fact that the IGTV episodes are getting a million plus, like to them, that's success. Like that's a big, that's a big benchmark to them. Um, I think obviously they love when they make news, like when Saquon Barkley said that he thinks he'll be the best running back of all time. Like that was a big moment because it was in a lot of places and he said it on our show and he ran the clip. It's me and him and the BR logo like things like that. It's just about having the show, across like all platforms and creating news and being talked about to them that that's certainly success. And honestly, for them, a lot of success is who you're having on the show. Like right now, a big thing is access. So for them to say, we had Saquon Barkley on the show and Jimmy Butler and Damian Lillard, that's a measure of success. What do you think so, for you at this point, what would you say was your best show? What what to you is the closest? What has been the closest to you ultimately want wanting this to be, and why? That's a really good question. Um, I think as far as feel goes, like the pacing of the show, the feel of the show, the behind the scenes, um, yeah, like that behind the scenes feel of it. Probably Saquon's episode, but. And it hasn't come out yet. I'm not sure when this will air, but I really enjoyed the Elena episode. I think that was a really good interview. Um, but I mean, I liked them all for different reasons. I think that 
the Damian Lillard one I put up there because it ended up being a bit of a marquee interview for him because we interviewed him right before the playoffs. And so this is the thing that people are looking to about his mindset into the playoffs. Like the timing of Damian's episode just worked out really well. Um, but if I had to pick one, it would probably be Saquon or, or Elena. You, um, you mentioned, uh, sort of what you get asked about on interviews, uh, earlier in this podcast and, you are again of um, you know your your social media feeds are popular and they're obviously a very big part of your own promotion. You know, if you want to use the phrase, you're pushing your own brand. Where do you land on using social media, your social media feeds for issues of race or social justice, politics, issues where inevitably you will either find people who disagree with something you say or they lead to trolls. I wonder just how you approach this because it's something any of us who, you know, have a byline or are on television always have to grapple with. Like, you know, you want to say something at the same time in theory, you know, you're trying to appeal to the biggest audience for your property. So where do you, where do you, where do you stand on, on sort of social media beyond just, you know, fun stuff, promotion, et cetera? Oh, I mean, like I stand around and I feel like I talked about that so much. <laughs> um, and I think it's because like, I don't see those issues as hot button issues. Like I see those as just things that should be discussed. Like whether I'm talking about it or not, it's something that is happening. Um, and it's something that is out there. And anybody that has a voice within this space or a platform within this space, I feel has in some ways a responsibility to shine light on experiences that maybe some people don't understand or don't get. It blows my mind to think about, what media would have been like talking about Colin Kaepernick if it was just four white men on a panel. I just don't know how we would be having those conversations. If Colin Kaepernick happened, I mean, I'd even say five years ago. I'd say if he happened maybe five to 10 years ago, I mean, anything more than that, I don't even know how it'd be, but how can you have a conversation about blackness are black issues without a black person. And so that's what I think about when things like this come up is you have to hear a voice that has in some way experienced what's being discussed. And I don't view a lot of these things as politics. Like I'm not talking about healthcare. I'm talking about how much we should pay in taxes. I'm not talking about North Korea. I'm saying that we should treat black people well (laughs) and that we should treat women well and that there is racism. Like that's not politics. Like you should stand on one side of that and that should be the default. And anybody who doesn't agree with that should be the outlier. But it like seems like every conversation is about like, I guess it's, it's about why this is wrong when it should be like everybody understands that it's wrong. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And here's, and obviously I agree. I mean, anyone who follows me on Twitter would sort of see that, but sort of here's my, it's not really a counter to you, but here's where I would go with you. We are both friends with Jamel Hill. We saw um, Jamel Hill during her ESPN time, I think state some pretty honest things, some hard truths, as we would say. And how was that rewarded? Well, you saw how that was rewarded. 
including by, I would argue, a lack of support from her own company when the rubber really hit the road. And so that's where I think Taylor just gets, um, I don't even know what the word is, tricky, but that's where it gets dicey for people who are, you know, for lack of a better phrase, sort of front-facing in that I agree with you. That should be said, but I'm not always convinced media companies don't want anything, obviously, other than um, to appeal to the largest group of people. And the generally speaking, the easiest way to stay, the easiest way to do that is to stay away from any third rail or issue that you could get divisiveness from people. I agree with you. Racism should not be a divisiveness issue, but in America in 2019, I think you saw what Jamel dealt with when she went into those places on social media. Certainly. And, and I agree with that. And I think that is an incredibly valid point. But I also feel like if I don't say some of the things that I believe in, I'm doing a disservice to myself. Like, I never want to get in this space and think that I have to change my views to make other people comfortable. And honestly, that goes with anything and not just these hot button issues. Like, I've never felt as though it's my job to make another person comfortable. If I think something, that's what I think. And I feel like it should be discussed. You don't have to agree with it. You don't even have to look at it. You don't have to read it. But it doesn't change that it's happening and it's what's on my mind. And I also feel like, honestly, anything that I would do or say, I will never disrespect anyone. I don't believe in in treating people badly. So there's a way to have a conversation about anything. Like sometimes I'll tweet about race and someone will respond basically just saying they disagree or they don't understand why. And I feel like a big part of this is educating people as to why they don't understand why this is an issue. So you can have these conversations respectfully and come out like with, I think is some good discourse. Um, But I just, I don't know. I would not have been able to watch people ridicule Colin Kaepernick or, you know, talk about race or talk about domestic violence and say absolutely nothing about it because that's something that I get mad at when people do. So it's just kind of deciding what you like, what will help you sleep at night, what will keep you up at night. And I think that would keep me up at night if I didn't talk about it at all. I don't know where I saw this on one of your feeds, maybe, or maybe you discussing this, the phrase, each one, each one, teach one. And so obviously that's about passing down um, knowledge, experience, obviously Carrie's done that for you. Uh, what I, when you were coming on the show today, I thought I was thinking about this and this is like really interesting to me. Um, you know, chronologically you're only 26 years old, but because you're a woman of color with a prominent sports interview show and you're essentially, uh, I have to be uh, blunt, Taylor, almost like a subset of one. There are no, uh, I mean, uh, uh, there are shows where women are interviewers. I don't know of another prominent national show with a black woman who's interviewing sports figures. If, if I missed it, I apologize, but I don't think that's the case at the moment. So you people, young people, women in their you know, teens and early 20s see you, and they already see you given what you're doing as a role model. But yet you're not very old yourself. You're only 26. And so I just wonder if already at this point, do you feel that um, – that you got to provide at least some kind of mentorship or if nothing else, you got to provide an example because the reality is there's a 500 people like me, you know, white dudes who have a podcast or writing and, you know, they, they could see, I'm not anything new. People have been sort of seeing me for all 
my career and you could try to emulate that if you know you're some 19 year old white kid somewhere who wants to be in sports but you're you're unique <laughs> in that sense you know what i'm trying trying to get to so at 26 you really should still be having mentors and trying to figure out at the same time i would think that the pe- people in the social media generation are going to look at you and be like you know, this is what i want to do and can i reach out to her and can, can she give me advice have you had to deal with that yet at all even though again like i said chronologically you're you're a pretty young person yeah, yeah, for sure. So I just wanted to touch on the each one, teach one aspect as well. That's something that I do say because I do feel like it's important. And that phrase, actually, it's said to have come from slavery when a lot of the Black people, obviously, they weren't able to go to school, so they didn't know how to read. So obviously, when you are, knowledge is, you know, taken from you, there's, you're already limited. So whenever a slave learn to read or, you know, learn math or learn to write, whatever it was, it was their duty to then teach another slave how to do it. And that's where the phrase each one teach one came from. Wow, and I didn't I know that. that. Thank you. Ways, yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think that is something that we should all live by, especially Black people in any space. Like, if it wasn't for you know, the Carries or, you know, Pam Oliver or Jamel Hill. It's not a stretch to say me, nor Maria Taylor, nor Ross Gold, would, we, we wouldn't be able to do this. So I feel so much love and gratitude to people like Carrie because she took it upon herself to teach one um, about what this business is actually like um, and the challenges that you're going to face within it. But yeah, it is, it is, I don't want to think that it's weird, but for lack of better word, weird when people like ask me like for advice, what I did and like all of these different things. And I'm, I'm always so down to help. I'll always say, let's set up a phone call, let's email. Like, but my disclaimer is always, I am still figuring everything out. Like, I don't have all the answers. I don't never have all the answers. Like, all I know is that you have to decide you want to do something and you have to put your all into doing it. And like, that's what I tell everyone, like, what's going to make you different? Like, how can you capitalize on this content space that we're in? How can you use your Twitter and your Instagram to create news and like create moments that matter? Like, that's something really that we can all do. And it's really just about like working on it. Like I, I know people think it's cool to say, Oh, this wasn't luck. I worked hard, but like a lot of it was luck. <laughs> like if you think completely honest, luck plays a factor in anything. Like I got lucky that I went to the university of Illinois. I got lucky that when I graduated college, the big 10 network that year decided to add this role that worked with the timing of me leaving Champagne. Like I got lucky that I was at a game once and Quentin Carter was there and saw me working. Like these are all things that like luck played a factor in. Like I'm lucky to get an interview that had a good moment and it goes viral. Like that. And it's okay to know that luck has been on your side because that meant when the luck came, you were also prepared for it. You had worked for it. And, like, it doesn't diminish what you've done to say, listen, a lot of time, timing works for me. And I don't like this this idea that, like, saying I'm just here because I worked hard. You know how many people work hard 
Like everybody works hard and it's not everybody makes it and it doesn't work for everybody. So I don't believe in like sitting on this soapbox and being like, oh, you know, this is what happened. I was in high school and college and I decided I was going to do something and I did it and I got to let nothing stop me and I was better at you than that. Because that's just not, that's not the truth. A lot of people want to be journalists and within this sports space that deserve it and are really good at it. And sometimes luck just didn't swing their way. Nobody saw their reel. No one saw their tweet. No one saw their website. But for me, it worked out. And I'm not diminishing what I've done. I'm not diminishing that. I think the X factor in that is me. And you're not going to be able to teach what you did because no one is going to be you. But everybody is their own X factor. And that's what I would tell any person to ask me for advice. Like, I'll help you with interviews. I'll help you about creating content and the pros and cons of social media and how to make a blog and why this matters and why that doesn't. Those are all things I'm more than happy to share. But just know that, like, I'm still figuring everything out. Like, I'm 26. And that's just, that's the main thing that I would say. But I do, like I said, I feel very happy and a lot of responsibility in the fact that people do look up to me and that's something that I'm thinking about all the time, like saying the right thing and, and doing the right thing and and being like, you know, this this representative of women and black people and really anybody that just like has a goal that they want to reach. And a lot of people, you know, will come up and say that our journey has inspired them and that means so much to me. Um, but I just never want it to come from a place of like, I have everything figured out because I absolutely 100% do not. I appreciate that answer, and uh, I'm you know we could probably do an hour podcast on luck and how it really plays into so many things in uh, in journalism and sports broadcasting. Um, all right, here's the last thing uh, I want to finish up on. We're not going to get to your family. I will mention just for the audience, Taylor's dad played uh, football in Illinois. Thomas Rooks, look him up. And uh, her uncle was a uh, little known outfielder for the St. Louis Cardinals, name or his uncle was a little known outfielder for the St. Louis Cardinals, named Lou Brock. So. The Hall of Famer Lou Brock is your great, your great uncle, grand uncle. Right? Yeah, is that, is he's that? my okay, great right. uncle, my grand right. uncle. Yes, my marvelous uncle. Your marvelous uncle. Yeah. So Taylor's got some athletic uh, uh, genes in uh, in her family. Uh, maybe next time she comes on, we'll do that another time. Um, how do you, Taylor? You know, I, obviously, um, you know, given um, given the job that you have now, you're obviously represented by an agency. I, I don't know if you're at. Uh, uh, the CAA or WME or IMG, one of those guys, but like usually in that position, when you're sort of at the job that you have, people start thinking about sort of uh, career plans in certain amount of years or arcs. And I wonder for you, um, you know, you already have a great job and you have a, your own show, which you get to sort of create, which is a pretty amazing experience. But do you, are there things in this business that you really want to do as you head forward? And if so, what are they? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm with WME, IMG, um, Sharon Chang and Dan O'Connor are my agents. They are fantastic. Um, it's really, sometimes it's crazy to hear that question because like my answer was always, well, what I want to do is when they have a show and like, that, was, that just wasn't something I thought was going to happen when I was 26. So I thought my answer forever would be, well, I want to have my own show. That's my goal. 
Um, so I guess my goal right now is to keep my show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, you know, I, I don't know if life is really about one goal that you want to reach in the end. And I don't think really career is about that either. I know that what I want at the end of the day is to cultivate a feeling. And the thing that I always will mention is like Oprah, for example, I would come home from school every day, me and my mom, we would sit down and we watch Oprah. And if you missed Oprah that day, you feel like you missed out. If you didn't know what they talked about, you have, you have no clue about life. Like what everyone was doing at that time was watching Oprah and Oprah became necessary consumption and necessary listening and necessary watching. And when you were sitting there listening to her, you felt something. So I don't know what I want my ultimate job to be. I just know what I want it to feel like and what I want people to feel when they watch it. So I don't know what that is. I just, I, that's probably the best way that I can, can describe it. If that makes sense. It does. Taylor Rooks is the host of Take It There with Taylor Rooks, which appears on Bleacher Report. Uh, you check that out on a multitude of uh, Bleacher Report platforms as well as YouTube. Uh, you'll also see her appear on other Turner Sports properties, including TNT and NBA TV. Prior to her work at Bleacher Report, she was an anchor and reporter at uh, SNY and the Big Ten Network, and uh, you know she's very active on social media, so check her out on uh, Instagram, Twitter. I actually have no idea, Taylor, if you're on Facebook. Are you? <laughs> Not really. Like, I am, but I mean, who's really on Facebook? <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, I'm done with it. Facebook. I'm ex- I've exed out on Facebook, to be very honest. Exactly. Yeah, so Twitter and uh, Instagram would be uh, uh, Taylor's feeds. Listen, Taylor, thanks for doing this. Um, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, and... Uh, and I'll be following your career. I wish you the best of luck. You have some incredible mentors. So that's very, very, very cool between Carrie, Jamel, et cetera. And, um, and I expect nothing but great things ahead for you. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I have been so lucky. And um, Carrie said Jamel is your favorite. So um <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. She's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's co-favor- co-favorites. How about that? Co-favorites. <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a diplomat at heart. Thank you, Taylor. I appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Jim Ross, better known as JR, is one of the iconic voices of professional wrestling. He is currently signed... To All Elite Wrestling, AEW as a commentator and senior advisor. As I said at the top, he also has a new podcast, Grilling JR, with the frequent guest of this podcast, Conrad Thompson. Wrestling fans are long familiar with JR's work in the WWE, WWF, WCW, and Jim Ross, the man who coined cash and creative the two C's, joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Richard. How are you, buddy? I'm good. Um, I want to start here. 
What uh, what attributes must a wrestling broadcaster have to be successful in the business? Uh, you got to be totally fan friendly and not talk above or below your audience. I think that I think basically, Richard, that the uh, same traits that one would need to broadcast any entity that's a a, a sport or a close sport uh, need to be in place. So that's kind of that's my thoughts on that. Not really anything a lot different. Prep product knowledge and respect of your audience, uh, and being real. You know, I never played the role of a wrestling announcer. That's what I was. That was who I I thought I was. And so I, I, uh, the role was never really defined because I just tried to be myself. So I think being oneself, being prepared, respecting your audience and having great product knowledge is a good start uh, to build a foundation to be a broadcaster in anything. You did some um, boxing work for CBS Sports Network, and I wonder if you could, for the audience, what were the similarities of working a boxing match compared to doing wrestling, and then what were the major differences in terms of, I I think the the audience is going to understand scripted entertainment versus boxing, but in your position in that role, what did you find were the same? What did you find that was different? Well, I I had to do the same amount of prep. Uh, I had to be prepared, and I, I was a, I was always a boxing fan, just as I am a, a football fan, or a sports fan. You know, I I appreciated high school and college sports in football, basketball, and baseball for almost twenty years. So I never got even when I was immersed in pro wrestling. I still have my my weekends with my officiating teams and things of that nature. So uh, I I I think that you still got to prep. I found that boxing was a little easier to do uh, than than MMA, and certainly easier to do than wrestling, uh, pro wrestling. Because in, in boxing, you know, until something goes awry, you got to you got to make sure that right hand, that left hand is in your radar, so because that's what they're using. In MMA, you got a whole different skill set, different attributes that you utilize, and of course, in the uh, grandiose nature of pro wrestling, you've got a such scenario where uh, they do a little bit of everything, and, and sometimes you're not sure what they're going to do. My best work was always when I knew the least about the outcome of a pro wrestling match. So there's that aspect of it, in my opinion. Uh, the, 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 the similarities are, in today's world, with so much content. Uh, there's a lot of boxing on, for example, a lot of MMA out there. Uh, I think the fans need and have to know who these guys are or ladies are, as the case may be. So, And it's our job as a broadcaster to give you a reason to care and give you a reason to stay tuned. You just brought up something that was interesting, because in doing some research, I read that you had said that you thought you and Jerry Lawler always did your best work when you could call uh, wrestling matches organically. You And as you just said here, you, didn't, you often didn't want to know what was going to happen. So when I read that, my thought was, well, you were, I mean, you were a major player in productions, you were in office, so how could you avoid it? How could you not know what finishes were coming? How could you, I mean, did you sort of actively not talk to anybody prior to, uh, prior to the television presentation? Well, we had a general idea who was going to win, just based on the pr- progress and the direction of the storyline. Uh, so from, the, from that standpoint, you had a pretty good feel, but you just didn't know how it was going to go down. 
I think that's kind of where I'm coming from in this thing. The best example I can give you, uh, all the way back to 1998, uh, uh, Jerry Lawler and I called uh, Mick Foley, Mankind versus The Undertaker. Right. And Undertaker threw Foley off the top of the cell. Pretty famous uh, moment in wrestling for, for a variety of reasons, I'm assuming. Uh, so, but we didn't know, you know, we both had a feeling that the, the Undertaker was not going to lose because he didn't lose much, but we had no clue as to how it was going to go down. And that helped. I think that helped my call. I'm sure it helped Jerry's call as well. It was so spontaneous and so extemporaneous that that's what a lot of wrestling announcers have got to master. And quite frankly, any broadcaster has got to master, master it because it could change. Things could change. Uh, you know, we're not all sure. That's the great thing about sports. It's uh, it's unrehearsed, and it is uh, a scenario where you're not quite sure what's going to go down. Even though you think you're traveling the right road, you may make some stops along the way that weren't planned until you get to that destination that you assume would be there all along. So uh, it's just a better, more spontaneous feel. I think announcers nowadays in that scripted world think they need to know more than they do. And I think it affects their calls a little bit, Richard. They, the calls become a little bit sterile and uh, a little predictable. And I, I don't know. I, I, I like not knowing and needing to know as much. Because here's the thing. I did XFL football. I've done MMA. I've done boxing. Nobody ever told me who was going to win those contests. I sat down and watched the monitor. They, the athletes made the music, and the broadcasters provided the lyric. I've been doing that since 1974, and it seems to have worked okay in using that philosophy. So I want to I want to just ask a question off this in terms of sort of the current WWE product. I'll take, for example, we're taping this on a Tuesday. I happen to watch the end of Raw last night, and at one point, Braun Strowman slams. I think it was Drew McIntyre through the broadcasting table. Would would that be something that Michael Cole, uh, Corey Graves? Renee Young, do they know ahead of time that Strowman's going to slam through the table, or are they reacting organically as they see Strowman and McIntyre heading towards where they do their broadcast? My sense is that they obviously knew, and the reason they'll give you a heads up, hey, they're coming your way, might be all you get, or, or, or you know, head, you know, fire in the hole type thing. <laughs> right. Uh, but they're aware, you know, they're aware it's coming. And, and sometimes they're, they're, we were tipped off just for our safety, so be prepared to, to get the heck out of the way. Uh, but I would suggest to you that uh, they they probably knew, and I don't see anything wrong with them knowing because for the safety hazard, you don't want to be sitting on your, under your table when it goes crashing down at, from the weight of a, a large man or woman. Uh, just not too smart. So I, I, I this generation seems to be in more need for details. I mentioned. And I don't think there'd be any different in that regard. You know, it's just, it's just a, it's, it's a changed world. You know, Richard, I was a big fan of guys like Kurt Gowdy. He was a Ray Scott. You know, I've had three belts of Bell's palsy. Ray Scott, the great voice of the Packers and the NFL was a phenomenal broadcaster. He was a Bell's palsy victim as well. So I kind of, uh, over the years kind of moved to that direction. And, you know, he, he served motivation when I finally got my first of three bouts of Bell's palsy which doesn't do a chubby guy with a southern accent any favors when he can't smile anymore. Uh, but all those guys told, were storytellers. I've always tried to be a storyteller. And, I, and, I, and that's, I, I, loved, I, had, I was lucky to have two grandfathers that were alive for many, many years 
in my formative years, and they were great storytellers. My one grandpa told me one time, said, if you get around your buddies and you guys are going to start telling fishing stories, whatever you do, son, don't go last, because the guy that goes last always catches the biggest fish. I want to uh, I want to ask you about a uh, AW and you know I think it's um, this is no genius statement for me but um, no one is going to compete is no no one is going to compete I think at this point with WWE straight up the company has too many resources they're all over the world I can't even imagine the amount of capital you'd have to sort of put up to even try to go you know one v one head to head. But there's a lot of people who are confident, and I imagine you are as well, given that you're part of them, that, that um, AEW can gain significant traction in the marketplace. So I want to ask you why, whether it's uh, Cody Rhodes, yourself, why are you guys confident that you can find a place in the market for this product? Well, I think that as a marketer, one has to assess uh, the, the overall state of the business in this case, the quacky business of pro wrestling. And I think that uh, we have all been able to sit back over the last several years, uh, you know, even beginning with the Monday Night Wars of Turner and uh, with the WWE uh, and how that has played out and how it worked through. Um, I I think that uh, we're going to be fresh. Uh, we're going to not try to make mistakes that the business has fostered in. In other words, I'll give you one quick example. Uh, one thing I hear a lot of complaints about WWE these days, and please, I, I had 26 great years there. I left of my own volition. I wanted to try this opportunity. I figured I was on the back nine of my life anyway at 67. So why not try something new that I can get back in the game? I'm a storyteller. I can't tell stories to anybody but myself, and that's a little freaky, here at home in Norman. I'm by myself. <laughs> I'm a widower. Yeah. So I, I needed to get back to the game, Richard. I just need to play. And so uh, Dusty Rhodes told me one time, said, you know, Sooner, if you uh, – oh, he was a Texas boy, of course, and I was an Oklahoma boy. Oklahoma, Oklahoma, yeah, yeah. Sooner was a great man. It's Sooner, uh, you know, the uh, you turn your jersey in, you're no longer on the team. If you're, all, if you're no longer on the team – you can't play. So I had to get a new jersey. I had to get, I had to get a fresh start. I think that the, the Tony Khan and his family's financial commitment to the brand is unparalleled uh, in, in, in the history of wrestling business for a startup. They're very well funded. And I, so they're not going to, we're not going to just fold the tent after three or four discs. We're not going to be that other football league that didn't make it through the season. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not being a, a wise ass with those guys. I mean, I, a lot of good people lost jobs and so forth. So, uh, anyway, I, I think that, uh, I think that we're young, except me. Uh, and, uh, I'm a senior member of the firm right now. Uh, so <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. Well, you know, we, somewhere in our, in our real life, not just the, the, uh, fictional world of pro wrestling, but in our real life, some of us got to make a decision at some point to play it forward for people. Absolutely. You know, I want the guys that are following me in the wrestling business to be, they're making a lot of money, uh, and they're doing very well. They have a chance to solidify their family's future by having a great job that can pay them an extraordinary amount of money if everything clicks. So I, I, that's kind of where I am with that. I, I just think that, you know, we get, we're young. We're going to be enthusiastic. We're going to try to change some things. 
you know, one of the things about WWE that I, I started to talk about was the fact that people complain when they leave in the middle of a match. They leave meaning they go to commercial break. And so I was watching Raw on Monday night as well. And I, I'm, hey, I, I'm still, I still can set my internal clock on Monday Night Raw on Monday nights. I know when it's coming on. My body just says, okay, flip the switch, here we go. And I just had a habit, and I'm a fan. I'm still a fan of all wrestling, uh, all TV sports, and any, any entity. So, uh, but they leave matches, go to commercial breaks in the middle of a match for the, to fulfill their obligations of their, of their sponsors. Now, nobody's saying you can live, you can go to, go to work without a sponsor. I, I get it. But you've got to be more strategic and more and smarter as to when you leave, uh, you, take that, you take that commercial break. I hope that we don't take little things like we don't go to commercial break in the middle of a match. If it was real and we want to simulate real, why in the hell would we leave in the middle of the live ball and play? We wouldn't. So it reeks of Broadway. It reeks of showbiz. And again, I'm not a knocking showbiz or Broadway, Richard, but the thing about it is we've got to keep the audience priorities and their sensibilities in mind first. So we don't break their, Oh, I see what they're doing. I oh, got it. Okay. never mind. I'll go make a sandwich. I'll get another bottle of water, whatever it may be. So uh, that's kind of where I, I see that. I, I think that we, we're going to be fresh and different, very athletic, very young. We're an expansion team. We're an expansion team and we're able to go draft and sign whoever we want. We ain't got it. We don't have to go into some order. It's, it's, it's there. So, uh, I, and all these kids that we have, uh, you know, Cody Rhodes and Kenny Omega, the young bucks, uh, for, for just to name a few, that they have captured the imagination of their fan base. And for these cats to go into Chicago last fall with no TV, no major promotional arm, sell it out in advance and have a hell of a show is nothing short of extraordinary. So I'm, I'm excited about the potential of it, quite frankly. I just think that the enthusiasm, and look, we've got to grow. And as you said so astutely, there's absolutely no way that anybody should ever think that anyone in wrestling is going to overtake WWE. And I don't think that's a big deal. I don't think you need to overtake WWE to make a lot of money. So uh, I, I, I don't look at that. If AEW should spend as little time as they can, in my my opinion, in in uh, in taking and dealing with where WWE is going, you can't affect it. You can't change it. And I finally learned it later in life. Here, I get off the soapbox. Is that you know, if I can't invest a lot of my energy and my my time in something I can't affect, and and the AEW cannot affect how WWE is going to run their business or not, even though some will throw their eyes on that that statement and say. Well, yeah, but they're going to make sure these guys don't get signed. That they're, they're going to be hard to get, you know, get talent from, et cetera, et cetera. That may be true, but we can't spend time worrying about it. Jim, one of the things that uh, AEW has already done is they've put together uh, a broadcast team. Yourself, uh, Excalibur, Alex Marvez. Uh, I, I read Justin Roberts is the ring announcer. So there's, there's obviously, um, you know, there's talent on air, talent in place. Have you been either told or maybe it will be your call as to what the presentation style will be? Will it be what those of us who have watched wrestling over the years, kind of the traditional two-person or three-person booth, 
similar kind of stylistically or will this be radically different? And if so, what will it be in terms of the broadcast presentation? Well, I went to, I flew to Atlanta and met my partners uh, for a couple of days of walkthroughs, basically practice. Unlike Alan Iverson, we did practice <laughs> and we had to practice. So uh, I, I, we're, we're, I think we've got this thing. We, we had to establish our roles. Everybody's got to, as the Rock would say, we've got to know the role. And so we, Alex Marvez, you know, is an NFL insider. Alex is a broadcaster on Sirius XM. He's been involved in NFL forever. And his, he's a very detail-oriented guy. He's great at getting the trivia. I told him I wanted him to be kind of like a Jay Glazer, uh, where he's, um, you know, getting, the, getting good data. Not just this guy graduated from high school with 42 kids, but other data that would challenge or provide information needed, seemingly needed, by the fan base in today's world of social media, which is huge. The other, our other uh, partner, so Alex is going to be like an Adam Schefter or a, uh, uh, one of those cats, you know, uh, as I mentioned, Glazer, some of those dudes. There's about a million of them on TV, it seems like. Uh, interchangeable parts. I don't know that any of them have, only those two I've mentioned have distinguished themselves. A lot of the others have not yet, but I hope that they will. Uh, so then Excalibur wrestled uh, in, in basically a lot, of, a lot in California, but in other places as well. He's been involved in, in promotion and in booking. He's got a great mind for the business. So he's going to be our rest, our go-to wrestling guy. Uh, he'll tell us why this hold is working. Uh, he'll tell us what the strategies looks like, the stra- how the strategy is laying out. So everybody's going to have their role because if you don't, uh, it can be a, a, a train wreck with three guys out there who have never worked together before, who are live, live with no net. Uh, it's going to, it's like, it's kind of an adventure. I, I kind of dig that. Uh, so that's kind of, that's, I think that's, uh, we're sure that we think we've got everybody's role. My role as the play-by-play guy is to be essentially in a three-man booth in wrestling. You become a point guard. And it's my job to get the ball to my partners in positions that they can score. It's just listening to each other, common sense, and, and letting, letting everything breathe a little bit. I'm not a major fan of a three-man booth, but I know it can work if it's, uh, if it's organized and synchronized and everybody knows the role. I know that um, there is no formal deal announced yet, but a lot of people obviously are um, speculating that there'll be an announcement very shortly with Turner Sports without giving up anything proprietary. Is there a time frame uh, to which we will see you on the air, regardless of what that network may or may not be? Well, I don't have any. I don't have a lot of inside information because I kind of purposely stayed away from that. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't need to know it. Uh, but my sense tells me that we're going to go in the air sometime in October, uh, and I'm not sure what night. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of stories like you have and others have, and you're probably more plugged into it than I am. Uh, I'm thinking uh, October. I'm thinking uh, the show air will probably. Tuesday or a Wednesday night in prime time uh, on one of the Turner networks. You can't lose, I don't think, either way, if you go to TNT or TBS. Absolutely. That's oh, one of those are fantastic. Hang, hang on. Yeah. You know, 
I, said, I don't think that we can lose on either one of those networks if we're if that we're lucky enough to get on. So I'm thinking October. I'm thinking uh, early week. I'm thinking prime time, uh, uh, and I think it's going to be a two hour show. Uh, God forbid we try to do three hours like <laughs> WWE's doing on Monday nights because the results have been disastrous. Yeah, the uh, that third the third hour uh, unless something major is happening just drops. It's it's it has not it has not been t- successful. Um, oh, I appreciate that answer. Thank you. And well, I think I think a lot of those um, questions will be answered uh, uh, over the next couple of weeks. I want to ask you about Starcast Two. That is, um, that's a convention, wrestling convention, going to be at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, May twenty third through May twenty sixth, centered around uh, AW's Double Nothing show in Vegas. But the interesting thing to me, Jim, is that. And, you know, props to Conrad Thompson for his work on this. There's such a market for nostalgia when it comes to wrestling. And, like, that market has not dried up, which is kind of stunning. So whether it's people buying tickets because they want to hear you and Jerry Lawler talk, whether they want to um, buy tickets for the roast of Ric Flair, whether they want to meet, uh, you know, Hall and Nash. Like, you know, we're still talking 20, 25 years later People are still willing to pay money to be part of that world. You've been in this business for a long time. Do you have a sense as to why that is? Because it's very similar to baseball or some traditional sports, um, but yet it holds. For whatever reason, even though these guys have not necessarily wrestled in the ring for a long time, there's still a connection between the fans that many years later so you could put these conventions together. Why do you think that is? What's what's the hold? I think it's a lot like... uh the uh, these uh, comic cons. I, I make appearances uh, at comic cons uh, uh, a, a lot, and I enjoy the heck out of them. It's the same basic thing. Uh, people line up to see uh, those that have contributed uh, to their upbringing, to their life in some shape, form, or fashion. Uh, you know, I hear this all the time. Well, Jr., you're the you're the vo- the voice of my childhood. So maybe somebody brings their kid uh, uh, or uh, their brother or something where they collectively have watched the wrestling and now you get to go chance to meet some of your, your, some of your heroes or villains or whatever the case may be. I just think there was never really an outlet. You know, we accept that social media has changed everything. I don't know that you'd have this today if we didn't have social media. I just really don't. I mean, uh, that includes your podcast. You know, you can mention uh, Nostalgia. You know, Conrad and I do a podcast that, that's, that escapes, I say, every Thursday morning at 6 Eastern. I call Grilling JR, and we talk nostalgia. This week, we're going to talk about a, a, a pay-per-view that I hit, I did in WWE where on Sunday night, the power went out in our in arena because of storms, and we had to finish it on Tuesday, of all things. <laughs> uh, but it's an interesting story. So we're going back to all the background stuff. Uh, this show this up as we speak at this moment. Is about the curtain call, nostalgia, Madison Square Garden, you know, the the, the, the fourth wall or whatever the hell it is. Yeah, was, broke, was, yep. was broke it. Yep. Uh, you know, the first the first show was nostalgia. Why did JR leave WCW and go to WWE? <clears throat> was it a good move? Was it motivation? What's the backstory? So you're right about the nostalgia. Absolutely right about the nostalgia. So I think, quite frankly, television is missing because we know content is king. And everybody can't get enough content. Uh, I think that um, the 
network, some of the networks are missing a boat by not advertising, promoting, and marketing and packaging. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, the uh, uh, some of these old football games. I, and look, I admittedly an OU fanatic. Uh, I spent a lot of money. I, I'm a donor. I'm a season ticket holder. We've got a suite at, oh, here at the stadium, which I'm sitting three miles from now in my living room. But I think there's there's money left on the table on some of these great matchups. If you can have an uh, uh, SVU marathon, you should be able to have a uh, an Orange Bowl marathon or a, or a playoff marathon or something, or big games, you know, SEC, anything to package these vintage games that some people have never seen. Uh, I watched a football game last night, an old Bears, uh, a Vikings game. It wasn't an, it wasn't HD, so it was a little daunting for my my uh, little taste. <laughs> but I enjoyed listening to Mike Patrick and Joe Theismann. Theismann had a real good night. So sometimes he can talk forever, like me. <laughs> but the point is, there's a market there's a market for that nostalgia. The market for it. I was a big user of ESPN Classic when it was first introduced, and and I, I think it's a great thing. So that's kind of where we're part. I don't, you know, I don't know if it speaks to our the politics, the uh, the the personality of our nation right now, or what it is. I think we all want to go find uh, better days, and what reminds us of better days. So and and, and getting away from all the the the, the presidential Twitter wars. And I'm not going political here, but the bottom line is, is that, you know, uh, a lot of us are a little uncomfortable with where we are right now and some of our dialogue and presentation and so forth. Uh, but I think going back to nostalgia, hey, why the hell do we think that uh, all these radio still works? There's got to be a reason, you know. So I, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I, I like the nostalgia aspect of it. And you bring up a great point. I want to... Uh... Uh, it's sort of further furthering that Conrad, um, he started this sort of mini podcast empire with Bruce Pritchard and that show something to wrestle with blew up because people were just fascinated by the inner workings of the WWE through, uh, Bruce's eyes. He extended that obviously with Tony Schiavone, the former voice of WCW. Eric Bischoff now has a podcast 83 weeks where he goes very deep into WCW. And now he's with you grilling Jr. Clearly, you saw the success of those other podcasts, and that must have been attractive to you. But how did it come about? Who approached you between you and Conrad? And what did you guys think that you could provide in terms of a, um, you know, something different and something new in a genre that has a lot of podcasts at the moment? Well, Conrad has great product knowledge uh, based on, A, he's, got, he's a very intelligent guy. So somebody might say, well, Jr. How can you be an intelligent guy and have that much product knowledge of pro wrestling? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know the answer to that one, but he got product knowledge. He respects the fans. I think he's uh, been a broadcaster, uh, wanted to be a, wanting to be a broadcaster for years. He does it very, very well. Uh, but we met uh, through Ric Flair, his now father-in-law, and uh, uh, you know we hit it off. You know, we got two round-faced Southerners that like fried food. We we already got a good foundation <laughs> for a relationship. <laughs> so, uh, but I have a lot of respect for Conrad. I enjoy being around him. We communicate well. You know, uh, uh, he's just a really he's really really bright in, in his his feel for what the audience wants 
And then on our, on Twitter, you know, I'm on Twitter at JRSBBQ. Uh, we we ask folks what they want. So it's all of a sudden now. Okay, we're going to put the I'm going to bounce the ball to you. But what do you want? And we'll provide what, what you want as best we can. So the audience has a big hand in, in what we're doing. And and they're part of the team. They're a big part of the team, just like your audience. We've got to have those folks, or we ain't doing this. Uh, so, uh, Conrad and I, we're, the nostalgia thing, we're on the same market there. Uh, he came, Conrad came to Nashville at a comedy club there called Zanies. And I, Lawler and I did a show at Zanies, a J.R. and the King, a night with J.R. and the King show, which is basically a Q&A, and get the audience involved and so forth. I think he saw how I dealt with uh, the audience and how we interacted, how we made them laugh and how we, you know, told poignant stories. But the main thing we did, we were always honest. And he, I think he, he liked that because I'm not going to do a show with nothing but sensationalisms and cliches. You're looking for some information. I got to be responsible to give you some drama, some poignancy, some humor, but most of all, to be honest. And sometimes being honest doesn't make me look good. But so be it. It's just the way that it is. So uh, we've got a good connection there. And of course, you know, he believes his Alabama Crimson Tide is the greatest thing since they invented football. They're close, but that spot belongs to the Sooners. But nonetheless, we argue about that in a very, in a very fun way. Yeah, the and uh, you, the, for, you know, just I can give you sort of my own objective um, uh, viewpoint. You have a great rapport. The I've listened to the first two. They were excellent. They were detailed. I learned stuff. And I think the audience has rewarded you. There's a reason that you guys vaulted to the top of the iTunes uh, Apple podcast chart over the first couple of weeks. So I think you I think you guys have something. And uh, and I wish you nothing but the best uh, with that. All right, two more here, and then I will let you go. Um, again, I think you, you've always been really astute when it comes to why people have the ability to pop in wrestling. Um, what, why has Becky Lynch popped where others have not? That, that is someone who just, I think 2019 has sort of been WWE, even in declining viewership numbers, et cetera. It's sort of been the year of Becky Lynch. Why has that been the case? Well, she has it. She has it, Richard. She has that intangible thing. You can't smell, you can't taste, you can't feel. It's just there. It's just, it's a, it's a mindset. And whether it be her smile, her hair, her never-say-die spirit, whatever she represents has resonated with a large segment of the audience. And she, was, she is the, she's the first attitudinal female hmm. along the lines of Stone Cold Steve Austin that, that uh, WWE has presented. Uh, she's, uh, she just has, that connection has been made much like Daniel Bryan did years ago you know nobody can tell you why a five foot nine or so guy like daniel bryan with a big old bushy beard not a bodybuilder body but a hell of an athlete how he got over he got over because he connected with the audience and they could relate to him and a lot of today's audience can relate to becky lynch because she's overcoming the odds and she was able to as you know uh, close the show at wrestlemania uh and uh, with, with her compadres there and uh, you know, Rousey and, and Charlotte. Charlotte yep. um, they're just, they're just great. I mean, they're, they connected, but Becky's that underdog, you know, she doesn't have the, I don't know that she's, you know, I don't want to go crazy here, but you know, 
cosmetically, she's probably about as real as uh, uh, anybody, uh, any female, because everybody's conscious of their look, because WWE is a big-time look company. Uh, so, uh, and, there's, and again, that's just Hollywood. That's, that's a showbiz sizzle that they like to represent. But she has just resonated her fighting spirit, and everybody can understand being an underdog. Everybody can understand about overcoming. And so what WWE's got to do is continue to put roadblocks in front of her that she can overcome. Yeah. People want to see Becky overcome. So the better the villains, the more growth you get in the hero. And I think they're doing a real nice job of that. Uh, this Becky's two belts thing's unique. She's going to have two matches at the Money in the Bank. Uh, just a unique situation, and she's got the she's got the intangible. She's been blessed with that intangible, and hopefully she'll continue to improve her game because she's not nearly as good as she wants to be, I don't think. But the key thing is when your money's coming in big time, you're, and you're a featured player you know, uh, around the world and, and outside North America for sure, uh, you know, that's a, it's, there's a temptation to say, okay, I'm good right now. So now I'm going to get in my comfort zone, and I'm going to stay here which is the damn kiss of death. Anybody in any profession, you or me don't want to get better at something. And we think, hey, we're pretty cool. We got this stuff down. Oh, J.R. Conrad's got big numbers. Well, <laughs> right. I'm going to record a show today with Conrad. If, and I'm not going to call nothing in. Uh, I've, been, I've been reading my, my information since early this morning because I'm excited about getting back along with this format. It makes me excited that I, we have it to work with. So, but Becky's special, and uh, hopefully she'll continue to be even more special. Because at some point in time, and sometimes when you least expect it, uh, you can be cold. You can be you can cool off real quick. Right. And there was a, you know, and that's easy to do. Fans attention span is everybody's got ADD in the wrestling world. Seems like because their attention span is very short. But I, I love her attitude. I love where she's coming from. Uh, I I like the fact I can call her a friend. Uh, I'm pulling for her. But the the underdog thing is things that we can still relate to. And any wrestling promotion that doesn't utilize basic human nature in their story writing is make, is missing the mark in a big, big way. And luckily for Becky, WWE finally saw that she had great markability, and now they're letting her run on the ball. Well said. Last one for me. We'll end it on a uh, on an Oklahoma Sooners note. The Cleveland Browns, uh, with your guy Baker Mayfield, uh Look really, really good. First time in years they'll get a Sunday night football game. They've also got a Monday night football game. They're going to be on national television, I think, four or five times minimum, at least in the prime time windows. What do you expect from Mayfield year two? Well, I know we can talk about the sophomore slump if we choose to. Uh, and obviously that's on the table. I don't think it's as probable as people may think. Baker is a, is a classic overachiever. Uh, in 92, uh, in the early 90s, I think it was 92, I was on the Atlanta Falcon broadcast team when they built the Georgia Dome. And they, uh, in the second round, they drafted this quarterback. That, as the paper said, they took a flyer on a quarterback named Brett Favre. And he never got on the field because uh, Glanville, didn't, Jerry Glanville, the head coach, didn't trust him. Uh, and... So I, I believe that the spirit that I saw in the practice field uh, regarding the, from the teammates to uh, uh, Brett at the, at back in that day was extraordinary. They loved him. They wanted to play for him. They wanted him on the field. 
he was their guy. They trusted Brett Favre, this rookie. Who, by the way, I saw I was talking to him one time in the end zone for the practice. Well, he's on. He's taking a knee. Ball bounces bounces toward him. He picks it up, and on one knee, he hits Andre Risen with perfect strike at the fifty yard line. On one knee. And I'm looking on amazement. Like, My God, how can this guy not be on? Because the Falcons weren't a powerhouse at that time. They were running that Mouse Davis run and shoot, and you know, there's very little running game. There wasn't much running. Uh, and so I, I, I think that's what Baker is. I think Baker has a lot of those Tom Sawyer uh, personality that uh, we, we love him. He's, he's tough, he's, in, he's intense, and, and he makes guys around him better. The overachiever comes from the fact that, you know, he had three scholarships coming out of high school in Austin, and none of them were from Texas, around the street. Uh, he got he got a wall. He walked on at Tech, as you know, walk on. He was, he was the Big 12 Rookie of the Year, overachieving. No scholarship. Okay, no worries. I'll leave. I'll go find a scholarship. I've got to go earn a scholarship. Apparently, I can't do it here. And so that's his mindset. He, came, he comes to OU, walk on. And of course, he did pretty well here for us. <laughs> yeah, no the kidding. trophy one. You know, you know he said, and and he, I, I saw every game he ever played at Oklahoma, home and away. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you this: of all the kids, the quick Brett Parks or the, the Baker Mayfield story. Uh, my wife gets killed in March of seventeen. It's the fall of seventeen. I'm going to my normal OU games. I'm down on the field before the game. Uh, watching him warm up, which I always thought was a blast. And and Baker has a great uh, Odell Beckham Jr. routine where he's catching more balls, one-handed, behind his back, all this other crazy stuff, uh, during these uh, early uh, drills uh, uh, pregame. So I always go down and watch him do that because it's fun. And he's you know, high-fiving. He's AJR. He's a wrestling fan. So uh, I'm uh, there my first time down just my wife got killed and. He runs over to him and gives me a big old hug. And he told me, I'm so sorry, JR. But you just remember this. I'll always have your back. So then the story continues as I get teary-eyed. All season. Same spot. South end zone. Oklahoma Stadium. And he'd come over to me and say, now remember I told you. I got your back. So that's. He didn't have to do that. It's, then the game's coming. The game's going to be kicked him off in 30 minutes. But he says he has sensibilities that are hard to quantify. And they're very unusual in today's marketplace. And I believe that part of that is because Baker was lucky enough, Richard, that he was able to have a mom and a dad in the home uh, from day one. He's not got baby mama. He's not got, you know, his mama's not remarried you know, and all these different things, and the father's remarried, or they have great marriage, they're good people, and they raised a good son. So that's why I, don't, I think the sophomore son is less likely to happen. Uh, and John Dorsey's done a great job there accumulating some talent. And But our Sooners are dotted everywhere. I know you're a Bills son. <laughs> and you got one of the best offensive linemen that we've ever had here. I mean, Cody Ford's amazing. Yeah, it's hard to... Uh... How, he set the second, how, he set, how he set the second round... It's, I think a godsend for the Bills, in my opinion. And I, all those kids. <laughs> Let's hope. For offensive linemen drafted. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so, hey, they, they got a monster on the other side of the ball, too, in the first round. So, you know, they're uh, they're doing pretty well there. So that's kind of my take on Baker. He's just 
such a, he's a good kid, man. He's just a, and yeah, he's got a personality. Look, he's six feet tall. He's had to put up that crap all along the same as Kyler Murray. Yeah. So I, I just think he's always been, he's got a chip on his shoulder that I don't think will ever be removed because he's always got to prove himself to, and nothing else to Baker. You got to prove to Baker he's in the right spot. But uh, I, I love this kid. I mean, he's like family to me in that respect. And I hope that the, uh, the Browns fans realize how fortunate they are. And quite frankly, the NFL should realize how lucky they are. He's a marketing star. Uh, I think they do for sure. I appreciate that story. Um, Jim Ross, better known as JR, is one of the iconic voices of professional wrestling. He is currently signed to All Elite Wrestling, AEW. As a commentator and senior advisor, he also has a new podcast. Check this out. It's really, really good. Grilling JR with Conrad Thompson. And, uh, you know, if you're ever on the WWE Network, uh, he's one of the iconic voices of professional wrestling. Jim, man, I, miss you, I wish you nothing but the best with uh, the new promotion. And uh, the podcast is going to be great. It's really clear that you guys are enjoying yourselves. Thanks so much for giving me a little bit of time today on the Sports Media Podcast. You bet, buddy. Anytime. And uh, if you're ever in Norman, the barbecue's on me. <laughs> I'll take you up on that. Thanks, Jim. You bet, buddy. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, Taylor Rooks and uh, Jim Ross. Where else can you get Taylor Rooks and Jim Ross in the same podcast? Probably not many places, which Terrence Malagon and myself are very proud of. So they were really excellent. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, previous podcasts, uh, right before this one, we had Will People Watch the XFL. That was a roundtable with Ben Strauss of the Washington Post and Hannah Withiam of The Athletic. Tim Layden, Bruce Feldman, and Daniel Dale were on. Tim Layden, sort of how to cover the Kentucky Derby, Bruce Feldman about the ESPN, the magazine, Daniel Dale for some Raptors talk. Before that, Adnan Verk and Mike Lombardi, Jamel Hill, Rick Riley, Ron McLean, Jason Benetti. Another wrestling podcast, Renee Young and Paul Heyman. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, check out Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, Radio.com. On uh, Apple Podcasts, if you leave a review and a great rating, it really helps us. That's essentially the way this podcast continues. So, great job today by Terrence Malagon to put these two interviews together. My thanks, of course, as always, to Cadence 13. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.